0: (laughs) We see kind of similar patterns to what you found with your, some of your weather severity work Mike, right? It was um, freezing temperatures and amount of snow cover that contributed to kind of predicting mallard migration and it seems like that's still a good predictor for some of the wild birds
1: I, I appreciate it and this was not set up i just need listeners to know that because <laughs> oh, you no. haven't even talked about this with me yet really this is the first time we've talked about it yeah so, yeah, yeah. yeah cool um, very cool yeah that, but... now it sounds set up and i know it's not, <laughs> it's <laughs> not, <laughs>
2: not so.
1: welcome back to the kitchen conversation the Fowl weather podcast we truly believe that the kitchen is the perfect place for sharing information spending time with family and friends and genuinely bsing about life ducks the science of duck migration duck conservation and duck hunting itself at either home or camp the kitchen is a place to celebrate the day and come together to learn from each other but also a place to simply enjoy life The Foul Weather Podcast aims to use the kitchen conversations as a way to bring duck science with duck science people directly to you in raw form. But we also aim to simply talk with duck people across duck country as well. Very often you're going to notice that duck science people are also duck people from across duck country. Just think about that for a second. Most of the people that work very hard to conserve duck Habitat and ducks themselves are also duck hunters from across duck country USA. In this episode, we meet with Ben Lukinen, PhD student at Michigan State. Ben is tracking mallards from the Great Lakes population using GPS backpacks. Ben's aim is to understand why the Great Lakes population is declining. He works closely with Dr. Phil Lavretzky to understand how game farm genes may be negatively affecting mallard migration to southern latitudes. Taking a break from the North American Duck Symposium, we talk ducks with Ben and Dr. Phil. We're squirreled away in a back room of the conference center. Mostly in this episode of The Kitchen Conversations, you will hear about truly groundbreaking research presented for the first time just days before during the symposium. Thanks for joining us for another episode of The Kitchen Conversations. All right, we are live. All right, I'm here tonight with Ben Lukonen and Phil Lavretsky, and we're gonna talk mallards and, and mallard genetics. Uh, Ben's a PhD student now at Michigan State University, and these guys are just gonna correct me if I say anything wrong at any point. Uh, Phil Levretsky is an associate professor at the University of Texas, El Paso. He's been on a ton of podcasts. You probably heard Phil's name before. One of the things that I really want to make a point of here, and we're gonna talk about kind of your, your current positions, your backgrounds and such, but that I don't think a lot of people that are duck hunters always think about the fact that waterfall biologists, duck professors, you know, know, those folks that are into this stuff at the academic level and the state level and the federal level that are looking out for ducks are also duck hunters themselves, right? And they're in the fields and in the marshes and, you know, on the rivers and on the lakes with you. And so let's, uh, rather than maybe get into your current positions, Ben, why don't you just talk about Kind of your you as a as a duck hunter first, and how you know how that played into what you ended up thinking about as a career and going on to grad school um, to to work on ducks
0: sure, yeah, I think like a lot of folks who have grown up duck hunting, I was been um uh, fortunate to have a really good mentor. My dad was an avid waterfowl hunter, and so he got me into the to duck hunting and um you know, just hunting and fishing in general. So from as early as I can remember, I was out in the marsh duck hunting and we also did a lot of um, field goose hunting Mm -hmm. in South Central Michigan. And so I was always interested in ducks and what they were doing for the majority of the time that we weren't out there watching them and hunting them. And so that really, um, you know, piqued my interest and ultimately led to where I am today.
1: Yeah. So a lot of, uh, I, I kind of, you know, all the weather severity stuff that we do on the Foul Weather Podcast was literally came out of like the days of duck hunting and and not knowing why I wasn't seeing ducks and the next day I'd see ducks and I just wanted to kind of solve that. And I think right. that curiosity is what, what gets us into it a lot, so... Phil, your story as as far as um, waterfall. I mean, I don't. I don't even know. Did you? Were you like a science nerd and then a duck hunter, or were you a duck no, hunter first? No, I was a
2: duck hunter first. Okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Surprising in Southern California. Um, yeah, no, it was uh, a same situation. A lot of us in the same situation. Mentor being my dad. Uh, it'd be uh, Southern California, we came from Russia uh, by the time we finally had a bit of money, that was the first thing he did was get a shotgun and we went out dove hunting around Salton Sea area and then uh, eventually a 10 uh, uh, I got a side by side double trigger because that's what my dad grew up on and that's what I started to hunt with, uh, first clay shooting and then uh, started to duck hunt, the first duck I ever shot was uh, this hand uh, buffle head that ran across the water and that, that was the that was the end of my long tenure of continuously duck hunting every second I could. <laughs> um, yeah, no, I, I essentially just grew from there. I, I figured, you know, cut my teeth there and went to University of California, Davis, mostly picked, it was between that or uh, 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 Michigan wow. I was going to go, and uh, I realized I could, duck hunt because i have a california license
1: so it was just easier so i went to davis that was really how i picked it huh. so you, university of california davis in case people aren't
2: <clears throat> yeah that's what, yeah yeah so it's in the sacramento uh, valley where you've got a lot a large number of complexes uh, the sac refuge system so uh, there was yolo refuge that was all 10 minutes from davis and uh delavan grizzly other places that i i figured out how to hunt and got good at it and uh, when there were ducks. And so, yeah, so that's what, that's what got me. And then what got me into the scientific nerd community was uh, uh, just be into genetics as is watching these things and thinking that they're little pterodactyls and maybe I could like bring one back. And so, yeah, so I married genetics and conservation biology together and uh, uh, with a system that I love to talk about. So here I
1: am. Yeah, very cool. Very cool. Ben, we can edit this out if you want. It's up to you, and that—that that sounds like a bad caveat to start with, since I didn't put it in here. But you did mention hunting with your dad, and I knew your dad in Michigan, and and he relatively recently passed away, unfortunately. Yep. And that this this project you two started together, because he was with the state of Michigan, and he was also adjunct at the at Michigan State or did he just collaborate with people? I can't remember as a researcher.
0: Yeah, he was adjunct at MSU while he was working for Michigan DNR and then he actually retired from DNR and went to work full-time at MSU.
1: Okay, and what I remember about your dad the most is I would give, and he's been around, he was around from like when I was a graduate student at Long Point and working with Scott Petrie. And we'd go to meetings and we'd just sit back there quietly in the corner. And then he would just crush everything that I thought was going on with the world of the waterfall in like one sentence. Yeah. Just that guy. And, uh, and you know, he had this quiet, calm demeanor. And that's what you have too. I feel like you're a little more diplomatic. You haven't crushed my soul yet, like your dad's <laughs> head. Um, but I always really appreciated his perspective. And I feel like he brought a lot of um, wisdom to the flyway and to waterfowl research is as, as well. Is there like a long history of him as a hunter? Like, like does it go back to your grandfather then?
0: Yeah, ultimately my grandpa um, was a hunter and got my dad into hunting, although my grandpa was not really a, you know, diehard waterfowl hunter, he mostly hunted deer. And so it was really my dad that um, kind of got into waterfowl hunting and then got my grandpa into waterfowl hunting. Um, but yeah my dad wasn't just a hunting mentor he was also you know you know a scientific mm-hmm. uh, mentor research mentor and he never uh never forced me into you know pursuing waterfowl research and the fact that i was almost going to be an engineer because i really liked um you know made more money I, mm-hmm. that's what he said he <laughs> said you, you should you should be an engineer you're gonna make a lot more money <laughs> and uh, i decided you know it's just not gonna be rewarding yeah sitting behind a desk and. Yeah. Um, it's going to be a lot more rewarding to, you know, contribute to conservation. And so, yeah,
1: yeah, that's cool. So, so Phil's like, uh, 38, he said, I'm 49, Ben. I'm
0: 28.
1: Uh, We're we're exactly two decades apart. Exactly. Exactly. But, but a lot of the same, same stories. So let's get into like the, the, the research you're doing, Ben, and, and then how Phil's stuff contributes. So you're working with Great Lakes mallards, Ben. Uh, you know, so we'll get into why that is. How has the Great Lake Mallard population changed, kind of relative to other mallard populations? And you know, what are and and we I'm going with it's declined, right? Oh, <laughs> then yeah. th- That's declined, and, and then what are some of the hypotheses for these changes? So what are those changes over time, and what are the hypotheses for that?
0: Sure. Yeah. So when we think about Great Lakes mallards, we're talking about mallards that nest in Michigan, Wisconsin, and Minnesota, and those birds are part of the mid-continent population, which you know goes from the Great Lakes all the way up to like the Yukon territory, and it's the largest mallard population in North America. And historically, Great Lakes mallards tracked changes in abundance of mid-continent mallards, which you know the bulk of the bulk of the mid-continent population nests in the prairie pothole and prairie parkland regions. But in the late nineteen nineties and early two thousands, both Great Lakes Mallards and the rest of the mid-continent population declined. But after that, mid-continent mallard abundance went way up and the decline has continued in Great Lakes Mallards. And while we have some ideas about why that may be, we're ultimately, um, we're unsure. And so that's what kind of initiated this Great Lakes Mallard research project. And we knew from a lot of the work that Phil and colleagues have done that there's been widespread integration of game mallard genes in eastern North America, and so we're interested in, um, you know, is that potentially a contributing factor to this Great Lakes mallard decline?
1: Are there other hypotheses for for decline, like landscape change and things like that, that you you looked at investigating? And and then how, what states are involved in this in this Great Lake study?
0: Sure, yeah. So a couple of the other things we maybe considered is anecdotally. A lot of the banders, um you know agency staff who are capturing and banding mallards during the preseason period. So during the summer, notice anecdotally that there's been this increase in the number of mallards in urban areas. Mm. And the way that we you know track mallard abundance primarily is through aerial surveys where you know we fly planes on fixed transects and count ducks and extrapolate that density, the whole area and estimate what the breeding population is. And so there's some concern that maybe, These mallards are using urban areas are not being very well surveyed because you you can't fly a plane low and slow over big cities. Um, So that was a concern. And then kind of a a third hypothesis that we were interested in is from banding data alone, we don't have a great handle on the rate of emigration or the rate um, at which mallards that are, you know, nesting or hatched in the Great Lakes are leaving to nest in other regions. And so we were interested in, you know, our mallards that are hatching the Great Lakes, maybe leaving to go nest in other areas like the prairie pothole region, for example. So those were kind of the main, the main things that we were interested in addressing with this research. Good good stuff.
1: And I'm going to now ask Phil about the kind of how your genetics work helps inform Ben's research. So some people, have, I mean, probably heard you on other podcasts, potentially, but maybe. if not, you know, a little... Oh my god! I'm gonna ask Phil to be brief.
0: <laughs> it's good. I don't, good. Know. I don't good. know how to do that. I know.
1: I know. That that's kind of why I commented. But no, How no, does no, 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 your brief. genetics work really help inform yeah. Ben's work? Like, what's the quick and dirty background of like the game farm mallard thing? And the, yeah, yeah, yeah. So kind of eased into the Great Lakes.
2: So we've now basically established that the re- release of these domestic individuals, which are are termed game farm mallard. Never, if anybody on the on this podcast hasn't heard the term game farm mallard, you could. Google it. It kind of looks like a, a mallard duck. Uh, but the the, the difference is, is that it it was domesticated nearly 400 years ago, somewhere in the UK. It was in the UK. And uh, eventually it was brought here to North Americans and release pro- programs began in the 1920s and they continue today. And the release of them, although we thought had no impact on wild populations, we now show that it's at landscape level um, uh, impacts where these birds are enough of them are surviving and breeding that it is now pretty widespread. If they didn't survive, I shouldn't find their babies and thus their genes on the landscape, but they're, they are there in, in mass. And so two places that where these, where these uh, uh, genes are being found at really high rates is A, on the Atlantic flyway, and and in particular New Jersey, Connecticut, uh, uh, Massachusetts and, and New York and other places like that. But the other side, we we've been seeing uh, increasing trend in the Great Lakes Bird, especially over the last 20 30 years. And so uh, what what this was like marrying two two awesome projects together and, and what I'm happy to say is that I can provide some sort of baseline foundational, information about every single individual's ancestry, basically doing 23andMe on ducks. And that way, that level of information can be a new covariate or, 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 or trait that Ben here can ask the question, well, this bird didn't go anywhere, or this bird stayed in a city, did it have Game Farm Mallard genes in it? And now he can actually answer that question uh, directly. I think that's 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 a sum up.
1: That that was good. That was like the shortest I've ever heard you answer questions. question. <laughs> so that's what I was shooting for. I, got, <laughs> I just kind of needle you a little there. So Ben, then you know what what methods are you using along with then? So you catch a bird, you catch a mallard, you know genetically what it is from Phil's work. You know what what methods are you using to kind of answer key these key questions about potential drivers of the Great Lakes mallard population?
0: Yeah, the main method is when we're Capturing these mallards and putting bands on them during uh, banding operations, we're marking a um, subset of those birds, um, specifically hen mallards, with um, a GPS transmitter. So basically, it's a lot like the GPS in your smartphone. Um, It allows us to track the duck's movements. We're getting locations um, from birds about every half hour, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And these transmitters are sending us this data every day. And so we're able to, you know, just about track these birds movements in real time. And so from all these birds that we're putting transmitters on, we're also taking a blood sample in in partnership with Phil, um, could determine, you know, are these pure wild mallards or are they a cross between wild and a domestic mallard? And the combination of knowing the bird's genotype And being able to track birds across the landscape allows us to determine, you know, the influence of hybridization on mallard behaviors like local scale movements, uh, migration, that sort of thing.
1: So you're also doing so, you know, you know what type of what type of mallard is genetically, you know, how it moves on the landscape, where it likes to hang out. Um, What about nesting metrics? Is there something from from behavior from nesting that you're looking at, too?
0: Yeah, these transmitters really give us fine scale, detailed information, so it's pretty clear when a bird um, starts to nest, starts to incubate eggs because you know they're at a specific location, they're not moving around as much, the transmitter itself is actually not moving as much, and so we can estimate um, if birds decide to nest, where they decide to nest, and for how long they nest for. And so um, that gives us information about ultimately what their, what their productivity is or, or are, are they producing ducklings and contributing to uh, sustaining the population?
1: This is, it, it's absolutely fascinating stuff. And you know, I'm gonna give away a little nugget here. I mean, we heard Ben talk <laughs> the other day, so I know the answers to this stuff already, but so it helps me lead into these questions a little bit. But given that there's been, I mean, in there has been a ton of chatter, on social media about these potential effects of game farm mallards on migration. And I think some of it's coming from, was coming from your preliminary results. Um, So like what, you know, do do you think that these game farm mallard genes in the Atlantic flyway and then moving into the Great Lakes region really have the potential to affect mallards showing up at at southern latitudes, and you know, what might be the difference between game farm mallards and then like pure wild mallards that you've been finding by tracking with these backpacks?
0: Yeah, so maybe the first thing to mention is that we found a lot of hybrids. I don't know if you want to say anything about that, Phil, but you know, yeah,
2: no, I, it's surprising. It, it's it, it would <clears throat> uh, birds that we sampled in 2010, it was like a 40 general generally speaking for the mississippi flyway is about 40 percent uh hybrid kind of stuff and 60 percent wild and now having that fine scale resolution fi- looking at some of these states i mean heck what, what was it? it was like michigan some of them are really bad Indian- uh, <laughs> i mean not to throw anybody on the bus
0: but indiana was the worst yeah indiana that's right <laughs> okay.
2: yeah, yeah indiana i mean some of the states had very low i didn't even think of- indiana had ducks Apparently they put them there.
1: Apparently they put them there. (laughs) (laughs) Um.
2: Yeah. No. So. So it. Unfortunately, it's increased uh, since since the last time I. You know. I. I widespread kind of sampled like that, and so that trend is concerning. Um. And and so. uh, But that the the fact that we were able to get such a, a wide variety of individuals, I think, really allowed us to get some really good data i mean for ben to get really awesome data to really ask the question do the does the genetics potentially have uh consequences on migration
1: yeah that's what was striking to me was the from you know you, you had a lot of you still had a lot of wilds but you had that full yeah. gamut all the way down to like here, feral game, feral game farms, which I was, I don't know where they're coming from. I don't know anybody knows exactly where they're coming from. They can't be coming from too far away, I think. But, but go go ahead and get into those, like those details about the differences in those, you know, those movements among those different groups.
0: Yeah. So, tracking these mallards with transmitters, we can see, you know, when they decide to migrate, where they go and how far they go. And immediately, you know, as soon as we got the, Genetic results back from Phil was clear that there was a pattern. And so um, kind of maybe where I'll start is something to be aware of is we can not only tell are these birds wild, are they hybrids, but we can tell, you know, what um, what percent of their genes are wild, what what percent of the genome is comprised of wild genes. And so you know it could be 100 percent wild, and that'd be you know pure wild mallard 50% wild. Um you know you get half your genetic information from your uh, mom, half from your dad's so that fifty percent is a first generation hybrid and so we saw uh, birds that had less than about sixty percent wild genes didn't migrate whatsoever
1: Didn't go anywhere no stayed in town basically in town like I mean I'm is I I that...
0: feeding a in them is it <laughs> pretty Pretty, pretty much.
1: Yeah. I mean, I don't want to make generalizations. Some might have been in farm ponds or something, but <laughs> it, it sounded like from talking to you, they just stayed in town.
0: Yeah. So, so birds that are less than sixty percent wild, um, none of those birds migrated. It's yeah. Wild. <laughs> for the for the birds that were in in between, you know, sixty, you know, between sixty percent wild and hundred percent wild, um, there was a linear trend. In the probability or the chances that a bird migrates. So, the more domestic genes an individual has, the less likely it is to uh, fall or winter migration.
1: Yeah. And that, I mean, this is where I'm, I, I'm and it's, it is the Fall Weather podcast. So, I'm like thinking about the weather too, right? So, I mean, some of that is like if it got really severe, do they, do they at least, I'm thinking maybe you did this on mild years, but you'd think they would at least like bump down to the Ohio river Valley or Tennessee. And then, and then like come back when it's warm, like a resident Canada goose. But did you see any of that type of pattern like bouncing back and forth more so than like, I think a wild bird would just want to go to the Arkansas big woods or, or, or Mississippi or somewhere like
0: that. I, I mean, yeah, that's, that's what we think, right. You know, traditionally the, wintering area for Mallards was the lower Mississippi Valley but what we find with our wild birds is they behave a lot like we would expect temperate breeding geese to behave you know, if the weather gets cold and we get um, snow covered they might fly down to the southern Great Lakes you know it's southern Illinois, southern Ohio, and Kentucky and Tennessee area but even those wild birds are not making it to the deep south and so that has hmm. Implications for your listeners who Mm -hmm. are in the Deep South looking for 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 mallards that are not showing up and then to answer your question about, you know, birds with more um, domestic genes. You, you might expect they would have some functional response to cold weather, but they just don't. They just don't. <laughs> they, really, they just, just die. They, they, they stay they stay put, and sometimes that has lethal consequences. Oh, really? For them,
1: you had mortality from that type of behavior. That's yeah. It, wow, it, I didn't know that.
0: It's, it's not clear if those huh. if those more domestic birds. Just don't have the behavioral instincts to respond, or if they don't have the physiological adaptations to actually fly far enough to get to open water and, and food.
1: That's nuts. Because they all have green heads, by the way. That's what <laughs> that's what makes this really hard. Because they are different. Like a full game farm and a full wild are completely different beasts. But once they start to mix and such, they start to look like each other um and they all have green hens and so it's very hard for us to notice these differences i i mean I'd... go ahead phil
2: i mean like i wonder what would happen if you took a husky and a wolf and you bred them a bunch of times and then you put them out on the landscape like how would they act i mean this is kind of like what that is right i mean that's actually the first this is the first time i'm at... i'm hearing that they're like not moving they're not and they're just saying put and they die because that was the hypothesis that we had right Um, We had the hypothesis that like, look, we're starting to see some anecdotally like they're not putting on fat. Their wings appear like we're seeing differences in muscle structure, things that actually have functional physiological uh, uh, causes that might make them like they just can't go. Like even if you push them to go, they can only go like so many kilometers until they're like, I'm out of breath and I got to I got to eat again. But there's no food. Right. So then it's like, where do you go? Uh,
1: that's your that's your like the, the other thing, too, here is for the listeners. Like I, I work with these folks on this genetic stuff, too. Right. So it's, when I say this, it's from working with Phil and, and other folks on this. But like the there's very few of these birds in most of the populations that are less than 70 percent wild. Yeah. They just they just don't exist. And this might be one, one of the re- one of the reasons. I I feel like there's some of these things that must move around a bit. So you're talking like really high end, you know, half their almost you know, half their their genetics are are game farm. So there's a bunch of them that are like 70 to 90%. They're still moving. They're just doing it less so than a full wild bird in general. They're kind of halfway between the two, right? They move, but it's kind of half-assed movement in general. Is that fair kind of assessment then?
0: Yeah, that's that's right and One other thing I might add that is probably of interest is that the more domestic genes the mallard has, the more likely it is to use and select urban areas.
1: Ah, yeah. So they're in cities.
0: These birds that are more on the domestic side, you know, they they don't migrate and they're really spending a lot of time in urban areas. So they're probably finding water in cities and they're probably getting supplemental feed. at, city parks that sort of thing
1: bird that- feeders little little old ladies bird feeders <laughs> ducks at bird feeders in the east are a thing so
2: yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah. golf courses mm-hmm. i don't know if yeah. You have those <laughs> you <have> more- <laughs> yeah, yeah no i it's it that, that's so, uh, t- tell the li- listeners if, if I'm right or wrong. Dude, but- am
1: I interviewing or you? No, let's <laughs> It's fine. Go ahead. No, this is important. <laughs> was there
2: like, was there a proportion? Because you broke it down in these different proportions. Was there a proportion where you'd say like, it's no longer statistically different than a, than a pure wild mallard? Like, is there a way? Is there is there a proportion of ancestry where you're like, I, they are now acting like that wild?
0: Yeah, it kind of depends on what trait you're interested in mm. but the third generation birds are pretty close yeah. to wild and in some respects even the second generation are approaching that um and you know there's maybe a difference between what's biologically significant and what's yes. statistically significant but it seems like for sure those third generation hybrids are pretty close so the,
1: by the time, the time they backcross, what is it two, generation. two generations with a wild bird
2: their kids are now just—they're just they're recapitulating biologically
1: wild mallards. So when we had birds in our captive study for part of our National Science Foundation grant that Phil and I worked on, um, when we just had them in the pens, the game farm birds were just—you use the word "pooping out eggs," but they don't technically poop out eggs. Yeah, first, I so we got—I understand. <laughs> but when they were—they would just lay eggs in the pen, like all year round, all year round. So it seems like reproductive wise, game farm birds from being in captivity have just totally different behavior. So you said you could actually follow these units and see when they sat on nests and when they didn't. Did you see any difference in kind of nesting behavior between those with more game farm genetics versus wild mallards?
0: Yeah, we sure did. So these transmitters really are detailed, uh, provide us detailed information about nesting. And what we found is that Early generational hybrids, so birds that are much more on the domestic end of the spectrum, are much less likely than wild birds to incubate a nest. They're probably laying eggs, Mm -hmm. but our data is suggesting that they're spending very little or no time actually incubating or sitting on those eggs, because ultimately they are not hatching as many eggs Mm. as a wild mallard would.
1: Do they look like they're going, are they doing normal nesting behavior where they go back at least to the same spot and lay an egg, And but they just don't sit on
0: them? There's, right. a, l- there, there's a lot of individual variation, but okay. it seems like a common a common theme that we see is, um, for the most part, there are, almost all of them are in urban areas. And so during the breeding season or the nesting season, their behavior changes, and they might start, you know, they might leave the pond they spend most of their time at, they might start visiting... Um, people's landscaping, you know, different kind of odd places um, away from water. Yeah. Um, and so, they're, I suspect they're probably laying eggs in those locations, but they're bouncing around to many, many different ones and mm. um, not spending enough time in any one spot to actually sit on those eggs, as as best we can tell.
1: Yeah, that doesn't help a population.
0: No, <laughs> at least no, it's not <laughs> not not really what you want to hear. Yeah.
1: So. So, Phil, you're collaborating with Ben, but there's other collaborations you have going on kind of to attempt to determine effects of kind of mallard genetics on migration. Yeah. Um, do you want to just take a quick second and kind of highlight? And I, I don't do names unless somebody's on the podcast. So just use like geographic regions that you're at. I just feel like that's fair to the other people without sure. asking them whether they want their information. Yeah, sure,
2: sure. Yeah. So we're. In the at the same time as what uh, we started with this project in the Great Lakes with Ben, we we were fortunate to get uh, collaborators in Tennessee and Arkansas to also start putting transmitter on their birds, and and a big th- and a big reason for that is that there was a very distinct genetic signature south of Tennessee and north of Tennessee, um, very disparate signature you go south of tennessee and and you're in november and you're hunting one of those big woods you have a better than 90 percent chance that whatever mallard you get is a pure wild mallard you're north of tennessee your chances are like 50 50 at this point and Mm -hmm. and that's a huge disparate you know situation we had some we had some data that's started to suggest there might be Uh, innate breeding differences between them and and we're finding that those signatures those those arkansas tennessee birds um they have a direct link to the to the dakotas the prairie pot that southern part of the prairie pothole region um and very few of them actually went to the great lakes so there's a these this is a meta population dynamic where it's you've got a, a cohort of mallards that are pure wild still going to their natal habitat of the Mississippi alluvial valley and then you've got birds that have been transformed to more or less stop doing that uh for the great lakes birds so potentially some of the old timers that talked about the 80s and 90s having all those awesome uh you know uh, halloween mallards or something like that those might have been those great lakes birds that just don't come there anymore yeah we uh, talked
1: about this today there may actually be like what a quote unquote genetically extinct portions of the population that, used that to just do, don't do the behavior anymore because they're not genetically i'm just using the word program to do so
2: yeah they they know we basically uh transform them to stop going to probably the carolinas Lower Mississippi Alluvial Valley; those different areas. They were probably the ones that you, you know, in the banding record, you could see the ones that coming out of the Mississippi, out of the Great Lakes region. They'd hit the northern part of the Mississippi Alluvial Valley, and they'd they go straight to the Carolina coast. Yep. They used to yep. do that, and now uh, I don't think South Carolina has any mallards anymore. So That's uh, they got something this year. They got something they did. this year. on they that did. real, real cold. It yeah. Pushed a few Had to get yeah. it real cold. Yeah. <laughs> um. Uh. So so but. That regardless of that, there's this there's a very distinct pattern in the Mississippi Flyway of what birds are feeding what regions, um, and and they are genetically distinct as well. And so there appears to be this this uh, coding that appears to be broken down in the Great Lakes, but still uh, has a strong connection to the prairie potholes for those southern southern mallards.
1: Yeah, this is cool stuff. And you know, one of the things I think listeners should realize is. I'd say, I think, I mean, we we started talking about this stuff and working on it four or five years ago, but in the last three years, it's really picked up. So it's not like we did this stuff. I mean, that's cut to, in, in the scientific world, that's like that's really fast. it's very fast, very, very fast. Um, so the next iteration of this work is gonna take another three, four or five years. And in future podcasts, we'll probably talk about maybe what those iterations may be, but I just need, you know, duck hunters out there to realize that, um, when, when we, when we talk about these things as hypotheses, that it's not like by next season, you're going to know what the answer is. There is some time investment and then understanding and interpreting results to, to get there. But I really applaud Ben and the team of all the folks that were collaborators with you on the speed at which you got this stuff done. Cause I feel like it's you know, the clock's ticking and the better we know uh, about this, the better off we're going to be, I think, conservation wise for mallards. But Ben, it's gotten warmer as well, right? So the thing we've got going on, is it, I always I always bring it back to like, we are the fall weather podcast. So we're going to talk about weather. So it's gotten warmer and we've got these mallard genetics moving in at the same time. So in a scientific role, we call that confounded in that we can't tell which one is the real driver but I'm going to throw you out on the limb here or maybe try to make it. like, which, which of those do you, and it's okay to say, I don't know, but which of those do you think is maybe that real driver of like when people aren't seeing Mallard show up at Southern latitudes like they used to and in the intensity, do you have some sense of like, from your work, which of those might be a bigger driver or, or do you feel like we can't tease those apart?
0: Yeah, I think that's a really good question. I think it's uh, certainly a tough one to answer and we don't have any definitive answers, but I can maybe, provide a little educated speculation, I guess. I like of, that. I like that. Based on <laughs> based on what we're seeing. So, you know, it's it's hard to say whether it's more genetics or more um, you know, weather or climate related, but, you know, anecdotally we see kind of similar patterns to what you found with your some of your weather severity work, Mike, right? It was um, freezing temperatures and amount of snow cover that contributed to um uh, kind of, uh, predicting mallard migration. And it seems like that's still a good predictor for some of the wild birds.
1: I, I appreciate it. And then this was not set up. I just need listeners to know. That. Cause <laughs> okay, you haven't not... even talked about this with me yet. Really? This is the first time we've talked about it. Yeah. So. Yeah. 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 Cool. Um, very cool. Yeah. That, but... Now it sounds set up and I, it's, <laughs> it's, it's, it's not. so
0: go on. Yeah. So, I mean, we haven't done any, any quantitative, analysis on that aspect, because it's not really, a, you know, one of the main questions we were interested in, but anecdotally, the some of the wild birds are, are still responding to um, freezing temperatures and snow cover um, by migrating. Some of those wild birds are responding by finding open water and food um, within the Great Lakes region. Mm-hmm. But like we kind of yeah. talked about earlier, those, those hybrids that are more on the domestic end are really ultimately not responding. Um, and so I think that if you're a hunter in the, in the deep south, a lot of the, the mallards you're probably getting are coming from the Prairie Pothole region because that population is, you know, roughly 10 times the size of the or 10 times the size of the Great Lakes population or the Great Lakes population is about one-tenth of the mid-continent population. Mm-hmm. So I think that probably some of the, probably most of the changes in migration that Southern duck hunters are um, experiencing probably related to climate to the being warmer over yeah yeah
1: that's interesting i never thought of it that way that it's it it doesn't matter as much if the great lakes birds aren't moving because there's just fewer of them it's it's if the birds are actually making it from the prairies you know across iowa missouri and into the deep south more so yeah
0: yeah and if i could just add one caveat you know it's probably pretty location dependent so like in the mississippi valley that's probably predominantly prairie pothole birds, but you talked about historical links with some of those Atlantic flyaway states like South Carolina. So those just historically may have been primarily Great Lakes birds. Yep. And, you know, so those those differences may kind of depend on um, where you are at in the South.
1: Yeah. Anything to add there, Phil?
2: No, this is great. Um, I think I think the one thing to add to what you said, I mean, we're good, like, you, you know, I... I was getting overly excited and you you pull me back and
1: we, uh, me like I'm the leveling factor for you. That's
2: that's (laughs) a scary thing. it, It only lasts about two seconds. This is it. Uh, yeah, no, I mean, you're right. It's, we, we've done an incredible amount in like four or five years. It's pretty ridiculous. Um, but what it's going to take is continued monitoring, right? So it's, it's a continued monitoring to look at those trends, to understand those trends, whether they continue, whether they all of a sudden the shoe drops and maybe it's something else. It hasn't happened yet, but you, know, you never know. But uh, without having that continued effort and, and uh, participation of partners, state, federal, and private, you know, getting birds up for uh, every you know, year in and year out, we won't know that that's the whole thing we've got we've got a situation and then we've got to be able to monitor it and do that's you want to plug the duck dna right now or? that's where i was going okay go for so, it. yeah so if you're a hunter and you're interested in participating please go to www.duckdna.com uh, sign up let your do uh uh reps know that you want to you want to have this pro- program it's a it's a hunter scientist citizen science project you become the scientists out there we you get to know a little bit more about your duck where it's basically 23andme for any of your harvested waterfowl and so please go ahead and sign up and uh, be a partner and and let us uh understand what the trends of waterfowl population at the most molecular level that we can
1: yeah it's it's cool stuff I did a little bit of it this year, and um, if you (laughs) screw your kid up like I did, it's okay. If you're a citizen scientist, I'm a scientist, and I still didn't send (laughs) this in right to fill. um, I'm going to take this in a little bit different direction because we just did the corn episode a little bit. I'm not sure when this is going to come out, but the corn episode was a thing we did, and I think a lot about ag landscapes and how it influences influences birds. And we also know that bill morphology – of mallards with game farm genetics is kind of different from wild birds they're they're more goose like they're shorter they're wider they're taller in a bird with game farm genes um, they've got less of those lamellae on the end of their bill and their nails longer they're more like capable i i see it as something that's like good at picking up corn but we've also seen like combines get better and less corn on the landscape so i've i've actually hypothesized that corn on the landscape actually helps out those hybrids more and as we went into an age where we we had increasing game farm genetics and less corn on the landscape that those two things didn't really help that population out right mm. so a wild mallard can actually go in a wetland and filter and eat seeds and stuff but then if you're a hybrid thing and you don't do well at that but you can pick corn but that corn's decreasingly available that could actually kind of impact the population you know potentially through just obtaining nutrients so um i did put this in notes phil before we did this podcast. <laughs> yeah, so i was don't like where's this going phil never read the notes yeah maybe <laughs> maybe, ben, maybe ben did um any like general i mean we can just bf I mean, it guess sounds like a, that a sounds, sounds like a thing okay <laughs>
0: yeah seems like a reasonable hypothesis yeah good I,
1: so if we put, here's the thing, if we put, if we had more waste grain on the landscape, would you have, then well, these hybrid swarmy things might be doing better. I don't know how you'd ever test that though, but yeah. I, I, yeah. But,
2: but the problem is, is can they get to it? Right. So like what Ben saw what is what we hypothesized based on like the, the change in the the difference in the wing length, the fact that these things don't have enough fat stores. I mean, everything that Ben saw, we basically hypothesized just from the physiological part like they're jet, jets with no fuel so they can't really go anywhere if you got no cue to go anywhere and a freak storm happens you you're not you're still not going to go anywhere you're still going to die and so if they can't get to that corn it doesn't really matter
1: yeah but these hybridy things like 70 to let's 70 to 90 percent are still out there moving around you know and if we've just really lost the corn available new york down I'm, not, I'm i'm getting out of great lakes because so i'm gonna go back to my neighborhood but new york down the atlantic flyway we used to in the late 90s we used to just see tornadoes of of mallards going into cornfields and that's yeah. all but but ended completely and some of that's just population decline but it's also just about waste grain so whatever birds that we see are really feeding in the marsh alone and if you've got a bill that doesn't do that then maybe it's i don't know i'm just well, that, i don't that, know how that's to a, get
2: like answer. you said 70 plus what we're seeing including what ben was seeing is i mean you hit 80 80 plus percent you more or less look and look. act so they probably have already recapitulated the bit like those kids have the bill of a wild bird to be had able to, had to get there right yeah. otherwise they either have already been sorted out purged out by natural selection because they sucked at life and did survive yeah. or um or, or whatever might have happened but that that's what we're seeing is, and that's where we're trying to get to is we're like look the cat is out of the bag and and you've got game farm genes out there but the question is is can you do anything about it and the real question is what is wild and so can we figure out to what extent so it's like okay if it's only two generations well can we just get can we just decrease the survival of some of these game farm releases enough, where the rest of the population can just go through their natural processes, and, and we can maybe get that population back to a healthy state, where then they can actually use the landscape appropriately, and then our populations
1: can rebound. Yeah, the way it's the way it seems like these things are purged off the landscape. I don't want to go here, I really don't. But like, if the, <laughs> if, the spigot, if the spigot turns off, and and I'm I, yeah. don't, think, I, I don't think we're to case i've talked about this like there's some evidence ben's study is really good but the body of evidence for for even talking about ending game farm releases and it would probably be state by state and not federal i, I think we're a long ways from it you yeah know, if if ever but if you shut the spigot off the way these things are purged it looks like they would just look like wild mallards really really quickly like yeah. what continues to perpetuate this is the is the Influx, so continu- it's fear, additive. It's a continuous additive, yeah.
2: adding, and we saw in our historical data in the 1920s where we had that bump, and then all of a sudden, all four flyways go back to zero. You know, there's enough of that parental pool to just essentially it looks again in a decade, which is essentially two and a half generations. Right. Um, it you have it looks like gone. a wild population. It looks like a wild population. Yeah. So that and the only reason for that to happen. Is that those traits and their genetic the link the genetics that links to those traits are crappy uh, in nature. At making in it makes wild, yeah. And like otherwise it. they'd sit, they, I, otherwise they'd be there. It wouldn't yeah. matter.
1: I like, if, I do like the word purged. Like like nature just purges this. These, I
2: these I mean that things. that's really what's what yeah. does happen. You know whether it's the it's because the bird can't get enough calories and it's eating too much and a hawk gets it or freak storm happens can't fly anywhere it's got no fuel dies yep. you know that's per that's natural selection
1: so before phil gets too far into the weeds we're going <laughs> to we're going to wrap we're going to wrap up with some stuff here uh, really thank you guys for taking the time out of you know the duck symposium for a few minutes to talk about this stuff and and yeah. get this information out to the public this is what i really Really like, and it's literally like duck hunters talking duck science and getting it to like these duck people across duck country, but ben any uh any less this these are wide open at the end, right, any last comments to the to the duck hunting community, you know general advice that you'd provide um kind of your your generation since you're the young buck here uh <laughs> your generation to kind of make duck hunting better for all of us,
0: yeah, um, I guess I'd say. You know we're learning a lot, but we're still collecting data. These are preliminary results, and we've got you know more work to do. But hopefully, if you're interested in this, you'll stay tuned. You know, stay invested, um, and just 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 think about think about the issue. It's something that I think duck hunters across the country should be you know thinking about and interested in, because um, I think this really has the potential to. Um, you know be important not only now but for our children's children and their grandchildren think about do we want to give them the opportunity to you know have the chance to hunt wild mallards
1: yeah do we want to keep wild mallards with us right i mean that's what this comes down to and i am the biggest like i'm kind of in the middle i'm like if this isn't a problem then we just don't know need to go down this road but the evidence it does mounting. It does it it does keep mounting but that's a really good comment and like if you screw with mallards and the eastern population that's like a million birds if you screw with the great lakes what is the great lakes population relatively in that region it's not it's like 800. i have something. to look
0: for sure but it's you know probably five six seven hundred thousand right. there. right if you mess with the mid-continent
1: population it's only 6.1 million now but it's been 10 or 12 million That's my concern is like, if this is moving West and it's going to hit that, that's, that's what really worries me. And so the reason we got to get this right now is, is for that. I mean, it's already hit me where I hunt in the Atlantic Flyway. We see way less birds than we did in the late nineties. We had that bag limit thing and all that, but boy, I just don't want to see it hit the mid-continent people because that's where the Mississippi flyway, you know, they harvest more mallards than anybody else fill some reflection kind of same thing maybe from a western perspective rather than like a great lakes of you know just it doesn't even have to be about the subject but like last comments of you know you it can be about the subject but last comments the duck hunting community of kind of like advice that would improve the experience for, for, for yeah.
2: I mean, the first thing I would say is like, keep the conversation going. You know, if you got, if you, if you know representatives or anybody else that you want to talk to and make sure they understand the the situation that's happening in the landscape, do it, you know, continue to have a voice. And, and, and if you don't, you don't, I mean, we all have uh, our thoughts and as a person who sits in the, on a, uh, natural wetland in the middle of a desert of New Mexico. (laughs) Um, I want to see wild mallards come into my, come into my spread. I like, maybe that's a purest thing, but I want to know that there are wild North American mallards that have no, that have all the right stuff over eons of natural selection and evolution and they're there and, and, and we're having that kind of interaction. That's what I look forward to. And I, I hope that doesn't get spoiled.
1: I love that. I love that. I was just thinking about just starting some bro science myth of like, I hear the wild mallards taste better too. I'm a girl, <laughs> but I'm going to avoid that one. So. <laughs> Thank you both for joining us on the foul weather podcast. I mean, keep up the great work. Both of you um, really appreciate, I mean, I think hunters appreciate what all you're doing um, and, our, and to our listeners, right? Remember that waterfall biologists, they're, they're not your enemy. So I think you quit treating them that way. Uh, they I mean, they're in the marshes, in the woods, in the fields, on these lakes next to you. Um, they're duck hunters, too, from across duck country, doing their best to keep, you know, ducks with us for today and, and for tomorrow. So uh, thanks for joining us. And I'm going to have Phil take us out on this one. May your skies be filled and shoot straight, my friends.